Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible. This episode, Milton's special guest is Paul Zanes. Paul is a film producer and the founder of Teatro de la Pace Films. At the Saul Zaints Company, Paul was production controller on Amadeus, directed by Milos Forman, and financial controller on Peter Ware's The Mosquito Coast. Paul, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure for being with you, Melton. Thank you. Um, it's quite an honor for me because I've, I've been a lifelong cinema fan, and one experience in being a Generation X cinema fan is... If you're walking along a theater and you see a movie poster for an upcoming movie or you see a trailer and you see the name Zaints on it, you know you're going to be in for something very, very special. And uh, the, the quality that your company has achieved uh, is, is just extraordinary and remarkable. Oh, thank you. Uh, we've always been known for trying to make films that Hollywood didn't want to make. Interesting, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I do want to ask a little bit more in depth how, how you guys managed to do that. But before we get there, um, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the present day um, and what you're focused on now. Um, tell us a little bit about Teatro de la Pace Films. Uh, that's a, a company name that I started back in uh, 1984 because I was allowed to work on films that weren't part of the Saul Zanz Company. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, I just finished a documentary called Coup 53. Mm -hmm. deals with the United States and Great Britain overthrowing the democratically elected secular government of Iran back in 1953. Oh my goodness, that's got to be fascinating. It truly is. The director is Taghi Amarani, an Iranian who went to England to go to school when he was 15. And, of course, uh, when he was living in Iran under the Shah, his teachers would be arrested by the secret police of Akh. He, he and his family had to be careful what books they had in the house. They had 
kept certain books buried in their garden because they were banned in Iran. And back in 2009, he got the idea to do this documentary about uh, the overthrow of Mossadegh. I mean, something that I would say 99.99% of Americans never knew about. Right. That we participate in a coup that overthrew a democratically elected prime minister who not only was friendly to the United States, he worshipped the United States. When this man spoke at the United Nations in 1951, President Truman invited him to Washington, D.C. Mossadegh got on the train in New York and insisted on getting off in Philadelphia because he wanted to see the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. He then spent a month in Washington, D.C. He went to Washington's home, Jefferson's home, laid a, a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I mean, he, at that time, and that was 1951, America was the shining beacon of democracy throughout the world. We had not gotten involved in any of these nefarious practices of overthrowing governments just because we didn't like them. In fact, 1953 in Iran was the first time we staged a coup d'etat. Wow, I have to say, um, just from this overview you've given us, it sounds like this is going to be a very illuminating documentary. This this already runs sort of contrary to the um, the glossed over version that that I've I've been told and heard. Um, so that's fascinating. Do you have any um, targeted ETA when when this film might be completed and uh, be able well, to be seen? It's actually in virtual theaters now. Uh, you can go to our website, www.coup53.com, and you can buy tickets to watch it. Uh, it's, it's showing in many virtual theaters across the country, and the theater gets half the ticket price. That's fantastic. I, I, I do have a small confession to make here that um, as 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 much as it has pained me to not be able to go to a movie theater for almost 12 months now, uh, I, I have enjoyed the existence of these virtual cinemas and these virtual film festivals. I've actually been able to see a little bit more of a wide range of uh, contemporary independent cinema that I might not have been able to see uh, otherwise. So yeah. once the world returns, I hope maybe we get into some sort of a hybrid sort of situation. Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, even here in the Bay Area, there are so few independent theaters left that you could see smaller films or documentaries. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, pandemic with the closing of theaters and the virtual film festivals and the streaming services, you, you get to see a, a wide variety of films that normally aren't so available to the public. Yeah, yeah. So let me abruptly shift us way back into the the very beginnings of your career in film. And if I'm not mistaken, you started at the Saul Zaints Company in the music division and then switched over to film. Um, when did that happen? Why did that happen? What, what, what went on there? 
Well, I actually started as a lawyer in both the music and film. Okay. When I when Saul's uh, head of business affairs and Saul made me an offer to come out and work in the legal department back in 75, I told them, look, I already know being a lawyer is not for me. That's not what I want to do. <laughs> and Saul said, look, a great way to learn both the music and film businesses is through the legal end. He said, I know you're into rock and roll and we're a jazz label, but I also know that you love film and we have just finished shooting our first film. At the time, they were editing One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. So I came out uh, to Berkeley and very soon found out that I was right about not wanting to be in the in the movie end of it because I couldn't contribute anything creatively to music. And the music scene at the time, or I shouldn't say the, the drugs affiliated with the music scene at the time <laughs> were, were not for me. That wasn't what I was into. So um, I ended up visiting movie sets around the Bay Area to learn what people do, to learn everyone's job, and went down to L.A. to attend lectures and seminars to learn more about the movie industry. And uh, I think it was 1978 that we were executive producing a film called Tell Me a Riddle, and you might say I, I audited that film like one would audit the college class. I wasn't on the payroll, but I was there all the time. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, that's a good way to do it. Yes, yes. And that was uh, Tell Me a Riddle was the first film that Lee Grant directed. And it was with uh, Melvin Douglas and Lily Kadrova, two of the you know, real stars of the old cinema. And unfortunately, it... The subject matter, I shouldn't say unfortunately, the subject matter was old age, cancer, and death. So it wasn't a real appealing film. It wasn't a box office smash. No, not at all. Not at all. And right from that, I went on to Amadeus. And I'm, I'm definitely going to pepper you with tons of questions about Amadeus because um, Amadeus is one of my two favorite films of all time. I just adore that film. Um, and, uh, your role in that, I, I have some questions too, but, um, looking back on the film work you've done over your career, um, I, I, I did a little bit of research, but before we had this conversation and I, it's just kind of staggering when, uh, I look at the, just the travel itinerary that you've accomplished, the kinds of places that the films you've been associated with it. Have been like where you went for at playing the fields of the Lord or English Patient and Amadeus. Um, tell us a little bit about the the fact that you've you've kind of managed to see the world while working. Yeah, I've been very lucky, very very lucky. I mean, from nineteen months in in Brazil and Amazonia, uh, many months in Tunisia and the Sahara Desert. Um, Italy, England, France, Switzerland, Spain, 
Belize when nobody knew what or where Belize was. It was only, two, I think, two years after it became independent from Britain and stopped being called Brit British Honduras. But no, I mean, but besides the places, I mean, the wonderful, intelligent, creative people I've gotten to work with. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about that. Like, tell us a little bit about some of these people that uh, just, you know, the, the median IQ of your of your working relationships, of your life has got to be on the very high end of the spectrum. I mean, it's just wonderful. I mean, when I go to do a film, the least amount of time I've spent on a location was nine months. And on Hector Babanko's at Playing the Fields of the Lord, I spent most of 19 months in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And when you're on locations for that long, you get to know the people, you get involved with the culture. Um, I mean, what I, and I've worked with a core crew. And whenever I'm going to a city, I, I'm like the first one there. So I'm looking for apartments for myself. And because I know these people, I say, oh, my God, you know, that would be a great apartment for John Seal or, or that's great for Ann Roth's family or Steve Anderson. So I put holds on them for when the rest of the crew gets there because I believe, I mean, yes, I'm paying these people. We're paying these people a great salary. But also part of the filmmaking experience is to get involved where you're living in the community. So I would, even though our studios may be on the outskirts of Rome or on the outskirts of Paris, I want to get these people apartments right in the center of those cities. So when you get back from work and you get out of the metro or the subway and you feel the energy of the street, you go, okay, I'm going to go upstairs, take a shower, and then I'm going to go out and come back down and meet friends for dinner. You know, that's part of the whole experience for me. And and I feel it's for the crew also. I mean, when I tell the heads of the department when we're starting a movie, I said, look, you represent me. So I want you to treat people how you want people to treat members of your family. And so... The crew, the people understand how I want a film to be made. It's just not we're making a movie. It's we're building relationships for the future. And what one time someone said, I hate my family. So I said, <laughs> well, just treat people in the way you want to be treated. Well, I think you've already uncovered one of the secrets to Zaint's formula um, because one of the hallmarks of a Saul Zaint's company production is um, excellence at every aspect of the process. And so the environment you've just described definitely comes across in the films. Well, plus, I'd like to use local crews. Um, when we, well, of course, on Italy, on English, patient, and when we were in Tunisia, we used mostly locals. Uh, a year and a half later, when I was going to do The Talented Mr. Ripley, also in Italy, the studio people said it's impossible to make that movie uh, for what you have budgeted. How are you going to, 
all, where was the money for all the flights for all the crew and the accommodations for everybody coming from the United States and England? You got to bring at least 130 people with you. I said, why? They've been making, we've been making movies here in the States for 100 years, and they've been making movies in Italy for 100 years. If we were making a movie with a lot of char uh, car chases and explosions, then I would bring those experts for the, from the United States or England because they don't make that type of movie in, in Italy. But, you know, I don't make that type of movie either. <laughs> and the, the studio would never sign off on the budget. The experts in Hollywood wouldn't sign off. I had a budget of $37 million. They said it couldn't be made for less than $50 million. And when we finished, we were under 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 the thirty seven million. Oh wow! Yeah. So one one of the roles that you served it it, uh, it seems that you you were quite the uh, the man of many hats uh, at the company over the years. But one of the things you did, um, am I perhaps overstating it that? the English patient might not exist were it not for you, that you were the person who first connected your Uncle Saul with Anthony Minghella? Yes. Uh, and the reason, reason I first became aware of Anthony was I was having um, heated discussions, let me say, with my uncle over the editing of that play in the fields of the Lord. And I was so upset one day a friend of mine said, hey, there's this movie playing over in San Francisco. Why don't you just get out of the office and let's go see it? So we went to the opera theaters in San Francisco. Uh, the theater sat about 35 people. The screen was smaller than some of the TV screens you can get today. And I watched Truly Madly Deeply and, and just was astounded by the movie I contacted Anthony, well, wrote to him at the, the Henson Studios where he had his office in London. And uh, so that was summer of 1991, I guess. So, mm -hmm. so cut to May of 92, the first AD that I always work with, Steve Andrews and I, were in... Durango, Colorado, for the wedding of a friend of ours. And the friend's fiance kept, who was a production coordinator, kept bugging Steve to get to New York to meet this director she's going to be working with. He can't find the first AD that he likes. And if he hires you, I know you'll hire my husband as the second AD and we'll be together after we get married. And this pleading with Steve went on for like four days. Finally, I asked Ellen, who is this director you're working with? And she said, a short, stout Englishman, Anthony Mangala. And I grabbed Steve's arm and said, Steve, you've got to go to New York and meet this guy. <laughs> and he did, and he got the job, and he did every one of Anthony's movies since. That was Mr. Wonderful since then. And I went to New York, and we finally met face-to-face. -face. And then Anthony brought Mr. Wonderful to post-production in our facilities in Berkeley. And, uh, of course, he met Saul, and he said, look, if you have anything you want to do, let us know. And 
He sent us the English patient. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a question for you about your uncle Saul that I, I guess on a certain level is impossible to answer, but um, you know, w- one of the hallmarks of his output uh, was definitely more a concern of quality over quantity. And um, he had this uncanny gift for focusing on projects that are, are, are not just, going to be potentially good films, not just potentially very good films, but the kind of films that stay in the canon that are classics. Um, and his success ratio is, you know, arguably the, the best in the history of cinema. Um, what, what was it about him that uh, drove him to that sort of capacity and ability? Was there a secret to that, that well, uh, ability? Saul was always an avid reader. My father, who was two years older than Saul, would tell me that even as young kids, they'd all be playing ball and Saul would be on the bench reading a book. I mean, every one of his friends just remembers him always reading as a child. And when he decided he wanted to stop running the record company, he wanted to do films. Um, he said the two movie, two books he would like to make were One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest and that play in the fields of the Lord. And at that time, Michael Douglas was shooting uh, Streets of San Francisco right across the bay from Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And they got in touch and they decided to, they worked together. I mean, the story on Cuckoo's Nest is before the book was published, Kirk Douglas bought the rights. And he was starred in the off-Broadway play One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest in New York. And he planned on starring in the movie. And for years and years, he would go around to all the studios pitching One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. And they all said, who wants to see a movie about a man in a mental institution? And then, <laughs> then Michael took over the rights for him. And he went around the studios and got the same response. And when Saul joined Michael, the two of them went back to the studios and got the same response. Mm-hmm. And, and then Saul, Saul and his four partners, you know, came up with a budget for the movie and realized, well, between us, we have that much money. Why don't we fund it ourselves? And that's what they did. And wow. uh, when it came out, Back in 75, it was the sixth or seventh biggest box office movie of all time. Wow. I mean, in these days, that would never happen with a drama. You know, forget about it. Unfortunately so. Right. And then it was also all word of mouth. In fact, all of our early pictures, I mean, Cuckoo's Nest opened, I think, in three or four theaters across the country. And word of mouth spread. And with Amadeus, a week before it opened, we had benefit screenings in 25 cities across the country that had uh, opera houses or symphony orchestras, and the the proceeds went to them. And that started the buzz. Um, There was not 
the money spent that it's spent in print, you know, you spend more on advertising today than the cost of the films. Yeah. Now, you're you're coming about uh, Saul's uh, reading being uh, an essential ingredient in, you know, locating great material to translate into film uh, is is one aspect. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, I, I, I recently watched an interview, uh, I believe it was with Milos Horman, or, or one of the collaborators uh, from the Saul Zaint company, who said, you know, the, the, the term producer has become more and more nebulous over the years, um, and it can be, it can mean almost anything, but when it comes to Saul Zaint's, um, he's a true filmmaker. Um, so not just at the beginning of the process, choosing material and connecting people, but during production and editing and so forth. Um, do, you, do you believe? Do you agree that that's an accurate assessment? And um, could you tell us a little bit about, if so, why? Yeah, I always believed to get the title producer. As you said, it became more and more meaningless over the years. And I always said, well, to get a, a producer credit, you should at least have shown up on the set once. You know? <laughs> <laughs> of course, I've got to admit that on the Ratchet series of Ryan Murphy, I never showed up on the set and I have a producer credit. I'm a little bit ashamed of that, but <laughs> or bewildered by it maybe is a better term. But no, Saul would get involved from the beginning, you know, of putting everything together, hiring the director, the writer, giving his uh, opinion on casting choices. Um, and he would be, he would sit next to the director on set every single day. Oh, and wow. then, yeah. And then of course all the editing and post-production was done in our facilities in Berkeley. So he was there every day also. So and he would get involved with uh, fighting the studios on marketing and and everything. Uh, I think the one time it was to the detriment of the film was with that playing the fields of the Lord. That it took Saul nineteen years to acquire the rights for that book. Oh and wow! He, and he tried all the time, but the rights were held by MGM, and they didn't want to give it up. And I th it's my belief that when we finally got to filming the movie and even writing the script, he had such a picture ingrained in his mind that he never saw he, he never saw the script or what we were shooting. He was just saying that vision that he had in his mind mm -hmm. because uh, there was a great movie there, but we didn't make it. <laughs> We were making two different movies. Saul wanted to make a movie about the mercenaries and and the missionaries, their relationship. Mm -hmm. And Hector wanted to make a movie about the missionaries and the Indians. So we, we made two complete movies. Uh, unfortunately, that resulted in a three-hour and 45-minute cut, which was then reduced to three hours and 10 minutes which you missed a lot of things taking out that 35 minutes where had you really 
struck the knife in and, and, and made it a two-and-a-half-hour movie, you would have had a very good movie out of it. But uh, Or three, and a half, three hours and 45 minutes was a great movie. But uh, Has that one ever been seen? Um, well, it's a funny thing about that. Um, Warner Brothers, who really, who distributed Mosqui the Mosquito Coast, offered us the same deal on that playing the fields of the Lord, which was a very good deal for just for the United States and Canada. But they were up front and said it's not going to be the movie that we push for the Academy Awards. I, I believe it was JFK they had coming out that year. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Saul, Universal told Saul, this is our prestige movie. This is the movie you're going to push for the Oscars. We want this movie. And the deal was worth to us about a third of the Warner Brothers deal, but they persuaded Saul they were really going to push it. Well, a few months later, we heard that some higher up at Universal said, are you crazy? This movie is much too powerful and intelligent for the American masses. Oh, I don't no. want to spend any money on this movie. Oh, no. I think they made like seven prints. Uh, and they, it, it came out on video cassette but has never come out on DVD or Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. However, I, I'm working with Warner Brothers now and Universal, and I think uh, Kino Lorber may be putting it out on Blu-ray. That so, would be fascinating. That would be yeah. fascinating. I did not get to see it in the uh, theater. The, the version I saw was actually the Laserdisc edition. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's why I forgot it was out on laser. I forgot all about laser discs. <laughs> uh. So if everyone can just hold on for a second here, we're gonna we're gonna take a brief moment to pause um, and have a uh, a word from our sponsor. Okay, we're back. Um, I would like to transition and talk a little bit about uh, Amadeus and. Um, your relationship with Milos Forman. He, he was a frequent collaborator uh, with the Saul Zane's company. Um, the question, I, I, this might be a cliche question. You may have uh, heard this before, uh, but I've, I've never seen it asked. Um, Milos made a lot of films about the, that fine line between madness and genius. And I'm wondering, did he walk that line himself? I don't think so. Uh, he was I a bit more grounded, huh? <laughs> yeah, he was very grounded. Very, very Eastern European, very well-grounded man. Um, no, he was down to earth. Um, he was pretty basic when it comes down to his, his living, his lifestyle. Um, Interesting. He... That, Whenever I'd go on a location scout with Milos, I would, I would always gain like a pound and a half a day. He'd <laughs> love to eat. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, he's a good eater, yes. And um, I, I was doing a little research about the production, 
uh, is this accurate that, uh, I mean, Amadeus had one of the, the most international crews ever. Is it true that there were nine translators on set? Yes, but only to translate from English into Czech or Czech into English. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, they were all Czech translators. Although mine spoke eight different languages. Oh, wow. But no, the the there was one Italian. The costumer was a, Italian, but he spoke English. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think there were any language problems other than Czech and English. And um, but one thing, let me so that reminds me of one thing. Uh, somebody said to Milos, "Are you concerned with all the different accents of the actors?" Because he didn't care whether it was an American accent, an English accent, German. And he said, "I've done my research in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire at the time. There are over four hundred dialects." So I'm not concerned if anybody questions the the different accents that people are using in the film. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about your day to day existence on set uh, while filming Amadeus. I, I I believe you you had a very uh, cramped location for your for your offices. Oh God. <laughs> Barrandoff Studios at that time, to say they were in disrepair would be a compliment. <laughs> uh, yeah, I shared an office with the executive producer, Bertel Olsen, a wonderful Swedish man. We had a sink in our office where the wardrobe people would often come in to, to wash spots out of the clothing. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I think the it was about 18 feet long and 8 feet wide. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and and- uh, it was great times. It was difficult. It was hard because, you know, we were working under the communist government. Uh, every hotel room had a microphone in it. Oh, my goodness. The uh, The drivers and the translators told us that they had a report to the police. In fact, Milos's driver once complained to him, Milos, you've got to do something wrong. They're not believing me that you don't try to contact any of your old friends. You don't do this. You don't do that. Please do something for me to tell the police. Yeah. Well, I, I suspect he, he definitely would have been on their radar, though, right? Because um, he, he had pretty strong anti-communist credentials and w- weren't some of his earliest films um, critical of communism? Uh, yes, they were. Yeah, Fireman's Ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But part of the, the arrangement of us shooting in Czechoslovakia was Milos promised he would not contact any of his old you know, anti-communist bodies. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so one of your responsibilities on, on set of Amadeus, was it true? You were the guy that was in charge of gathering and shipping out all the dailies? Well, no dailies and everything we saw there. It was, it was shipping out the negative at the end of the film. Oh my goodness. That had to have been stressful. And there we, we loaded everything on a truck that was going to Frankfurt to put on a plane and ship back to the States. And I just remember watching the truck 
driving away from the loading dock at Barrador Studios thinking, oh my God, there is six months of film of negative on that vehicle. I hope there's no accident. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that that would <laughs> I couldn't have been the stress of that. Yeah. Uh I'm a little curious about the filming atmosphere. Um, you know, music is such an integral part of the final edit of the experience of the film. Um was there a lot of music played on set or did Milos oh, just sort of picture that? No, no, it was all played. Um we recorded the soundtrack to the film before we started filming. Oh, I think wow. that's still the only time that that ever happened. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of music was played on set. In fact, in that one of the greatest scenes in the movie where Tom Hulse is, is dictating the Requiem mm-hmm. to uh, F. Murray Abraham, they each had devices in their ear so they could hear the music. As they oh, were doing, wow. yes, yeah. that's that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah, we also agreed uh, when Neville Mariner was hired to oversee all the music that no matter how much uh, we ch- we adapted the music, we w- we would we would not claim any copyrights on it. You know, like most films do, they'll mm-hmm. use classical music. Make a few, make an arrangement and claim a new copyright. But Neville said, "I don't want you doing that." We said, "We have no problem with that, Neville," because <laughs> I think it's still the biggest selling classical album of all time. Oh wow! Yeah, that wouldn't surprise yeah. me. Yeah, I certainly own it. In um, fact, um, we received after the movie was released, and I'm not exaggerating. We received hundreds of letters from parents saying they dragged their teenage children to the movies to see it. And when they left, they wanted to go to the record store, when record stores still existed, <laughs> to buy more music by Mozart. In fact, there's a really good um, music video uh, that you could find on YouTube done with a lot of rock and rollers for Amadeus. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, uh, we had big problems finding Mozart, the actor to play Mozart. Somewhere there exists a tape of Mick Jagger trying out for the role. You've got to be kidding me. I did not know that. Yeah, he auditioned for the role. Now, if if I recall correctly, um, somewhere near the final three was uh, Kenneth Branagh, uh, obviously Tom Hulse. Um Was Mark Hamill just never considered, or what? What was the thinking there? I don't remember. You know, Mark Hamill or Kenneth Branagh. I know he he talks about that he was there, but. I don't think, was it him or somebody else? I may be getting confused. I know there's one person who keeps saying that he turned down the role, he turned down the role. But I, I couldn't remember him even auditioning, and I asked our casting director, and he said, no, I don't remember that person ever auditioning. <laughs> People I claim a lot of things that never happened. <laughs> uh, but the, there's one story about casting for... Um, 
Mozart. Milos Forman and, and Peter Schaffer both had the same agent, Robbie Lance, who was a great uh, Eastern European gentleman who had been in New York for years and years and years. And he got a call from the president of one of the major studios saying, I've got the perfect actor for you to play Mozart. And Robbie got all excited and he goes, who? And the voice says, Walter Matthau. And, and this Robbie, was not a joke. Right. Robbie doesn't know what to say. And he goes, I didn't hear you. Who'd you say? He goes, Walter Matthau. Now Robbie goes, how do I not insult this man? And he goes, but Mozart died when he was 35 years old. And the studio response tells you so much about American studios. He said, but this is America. Who would know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, years later, we found out that Walter Matthau asked him the call, but it was for the part of Salieri. No. Oh, no. Yeah. Where you could see Walter Matthau being Salieri. Yeah, you could actually see that. He needed so much makeup. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So I do have one area of inquiry I want to throw at you. And to be frank, I'm, I was originally going to be a little bit nervous about asking you this question, but your candor in talking about the various edits of at playing the fields of the Lord uh, has me feeling a little more comfortable here. Um, but as I said before, you know, one of my greatest uh, films of all time is, is Amadeus. Um, however, perhaps my most least favorite film of all time is the director's cut. Um, and oh, I was wondering, <laughs> I, I just personally think it ruins the movie. <laughs> and I'm frustrated by the fact that the original version uh, does, does not exist in modern uh, formats. And okay. I, was, well, I, was, I am working with the Academy to restore the original version, the 1984 version, which I always say is the director's cut. Really? There were no constraints on Milos's time when he was editing, on the time of the film when we were editing Amadeus. He could have put in whatever final cut he wanted. Mm -hmm. In 2000, Warner Brothers went to Saul and said, we want to make a new DVD of the movie. Do you have any additional scenes? Mm-hmm. So that should actually be called the extended cut or the DVD cut because the only scene that's added that was arguably could have been in the original cut was when uh, Mozart's wife, she's with Salieri trying to get him to hire her husband for a job, get his Wolfie a job mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in that scene that's in the original movie we cut it out before uh, Salieri says if you want the job for your husband come back tonight my dear mm -hmm. so that line was cut and then you have the scene where she comes back at night 
She's in a room by herself, walking around, lighting candle after candle after candle, and disrobing. And then Salieri walks in when she's, I believe she's already topless, and looks at her and just says, my servant will show you out. Right. And then you know why she hated him so much. Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. otherwise you don't know why does she dislike him that much. But the other scenes with uh, Mozart teaching the young woman to play the piano with all the dogs and everything else, those scenes only went back in because Saul's dog is in both those scenes. <laughs> they were looking for stuff to put in. And no, I mean, I would say it's like... Uh, Mossadegh, 99.9% .9 of the people who watch the movie like the original version better than the 1984 release because that was the best cut. I am so thrilled to hear you say this. This is, um, this is amazing news because um, I, I have been championing this cause on social media uh, for many years. Um, and it was only kind of recently that I learned that there were, that I had compatriots in this, in this battle. Um, and it's fascinating to hear that, um, it was not really a quote unquote director's cut because no, that, that always baffled me. Yeah. No, Nana Donovic, the editor hates the so-called director's cut. And so uh, you see, you're working with, um, the Academy to do this, will, will it be like a theatrical release or will it maybe go on to home video or is it too early to tell? Well, it's too early to tell, but unfortunately we just had, you know, fathom events put on uh, cuckoo's nest in November when all the theaters, most of them were shot. I mean, 667 theaters had signed up to show Cuckoo's Nest on two nights for the uh, 45th anniversary of the release. And um, maybe in 2004, we can do the, uh, 2024, we could do the 40th anniversary of Amadeus, the original version with Fathom Events. I've got to start working on them with that. That would be extraordinary. I... I, I'll put that on my calendar in pencil and um, uh, count down the days. Now, do you have a DVD of the original cut? I do, but I have to say that um, watching it on a, on a modern 4K television yeah. leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. But um, that's fantastic. Um, so, so the editor agrees with you as well. That, uh, oh, yes. Yeah. No, Milos would have agreed. Uh, I mean, maybe for publicity he said this is the director's cut, but he didn't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I confess, the first time I saw it, I, I, I think I maybe even saw it in 70 millimeter, uh, the, the, the so-called director's cut. They, um, I think they did a limited theatrical run of it. Um, yes. It was, it was yeah. at the Museum of Fine Arts in, in my city. Mm -hmm. um, and it was amazing to see, and I just – I was blown away by some of the new footage. Um, it was only on subsequent rewatches that I arrived at this opinion because I, I felt that some of my favorite musical cues were chopped up or lost. And yeah. so um, mm -hmm. 
I, I, um, I evolved my uh, view on this. Let's yeah, say. yeah. So, um, one thing that we typically do here on, on my podcast is we, we end the podcast asking for recommendations, but, um, with someone with your experience in the industry, um, I'd rather spend this time getting you to do a little bit of forecasting um, about the future of cinema because there, there's quite a discussion happening there. Um, you know, there are some people that would argue that the kind of films that the Saul Zanes company produced can't even exist anymore, that there's no room for highbrow adult drama with totally magnificent production value. Um, if, if anything of that variety is made today, it, it's kind of more turned into like a streaming uh, limited series or something. Um, do you, do you agree with that argument? Um, do you want to push back on that argument? Well, I'm a big believer in, in the audience's communal experience of being in a theater and that people want to be in the theater with other people. They hear the reactions of other people, and even with the smell of popcorn in the air and the, the crunching of popcorn. But I also have to say that these limited experience, uh, uh, limited series give you the ability to expand so much on character development and subplots. Um, so I guess it depends on what what you're doing. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it depends on on the movie you're making. Uh, yeah, I'm in 100 percent in agreement with you. Like I I still want that communal experience, and for the for the stories that fit that you know two to three hour window, I still want that to be a medium. Mm -hmm. um, and but then when there are opportunities to expand. Um, to 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 go that route. Um, I'd hate to think that the only things you're going to be seeing in the theaters are you know these superhero movies, sci-fi movies, uh, animation for children. Mm -hmm. uh, there's got to be room. Yeah. I sure hope so. Because I I mean I I confess I do love those genres myself, but I don't want that to be the only flavors out there. <laughs> Exactly. And um, I disagree when people think this is going to be the end of the movie theaters. I, I think people are are literally uh, tearing at the bit to get out and be able to go to a movie theater again. Uh, I sure then, hope that's true for everyone. I mean, it's definitely true for myself. And me. And me. Yeah. So, um... We started the discussion, and you talked about the uh, the coup documentary. Um, do you have any other projects in the pipeline at the moment that you can tease or um, preview? Uh, yes, I'm working on a series about the English royal family starting in back in Germany in the Napoleonic era and going through World War One. Oh wow! So like the crown before the crown, exactly. And we have uh, we've already had the pilot written and and five seasons uh, f fleshed out. 
I mean, it was written by uh, Tim Bricknell, who was Anthony Minghella's protege and produced his last few movies. Oh, wow. And uh, Nigel Cliff, who has, has, has uh, a few novels that he's written. And uh, we're seeing, uh, they just finished this, the script just in the past couple of months. So we're just trying to find uh, production companies to, to partner with. Because it's, a very, it's a quite an expensive series, you know. It's, oh, yes, yes. I, 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 I yes. And um, I, 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 I believe I saw that The Crown is the most expensive show ever. So um, I think um, folks will have uh, an expectation for a certain amount of production quality if you. Yeah, I think I, I read somewhere between 10 and $12 million per episode. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and then I don't know if you've seen Bridgerton yet, but I mean it's it's on the light side, but boy, oh boy, the production value there is outstanding. Oh wow! I I, I have not started that yet, but um, that that's quite an endorsement. I will I will have to check that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. W- one of my worries of, about these sorts of things is, um, you know. When when you guys made Amadeus, there there was a decision made to uh, locate uh, the film, and uh, you know it's surrounded by a reality to it. Um, you know, if some other company had created that film, like in the year twenty twenty, I, I would worry there would be you know copious amounts of green screen and computer generated stuff, um, but. Um, Hopefully, if you guys do get this uh, opportunity, it'll be um, a little bit more old school uh, in that respect. Uh, Definitely more old school. Bridgerton is definitely not old school. (laughs) Oh, yeah? (laughs) Let's put it this way. The Queen of England is black. Uh, Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. It it has a different... Well, you you have to watch. I don't want to give it away. But it's good. (laughs) It's worth watching. Now, when we did Amadeus... uh, Prague was a city that had never been damaged in any war. The, the Germans pulled out before the Russian troops got there in 1945. Mm-hmm. Under the communists, they had no money to tear things down and put up modern buildings or whatever. Uh, and I don't know why you would want to, because Prague is, for me, architecturally speaking, the most beautiful city I've ever been to. You have this castle on the top of the hill that was started a thousand years ago. And as you go down the hill, you see all the architectural changes in the last millennium. But we literally just had to take down a few wires and you could turn the camera 360 degrees and you wow. 1700s. Wow. Well, I, I've never been, but I definitely need to add it to my bucket list now. Yeah, it's an amazing place. Well, Paul, I uh, I want to extend uh, heartfelt thank you for coming onto the program here. Um, I've, I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And I really so appreciate I. it. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Mm-hmm.